the BCS, the Chartered Institute for IT. This is the Gemable Mechanisms podcast. And today we're going to have a chat to uh, Lisa Ventura. So first of all, Lisa, can I say hello and welcome? Hello, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here today chatting to you. Yes, lovely to, lovely to have you with us. And, and we're, t- we're talking about an issue that's close to your heart that we've been talking about quite a lot recently at BCS. We've just released our neurodiversity and disability report, the way that people uh, use IT systems, the good, the bad and the ugly. And this is what brought us together because uh, yeah, I think you were attending one of our recent webinars, didn't you? Absolutely. So um, you told me some very interesting things about your diagnostic journey. But before we start there, perhaps you could just introduce yourself. I know you're an MBE. Uh, Tell us a bit about your background and so on. That'd be lovely. Absolutely. So I've been in cybersecurity since 2009. Prior to that, I um, had actually spent a number of years working in the entertainment industry and working with Chris Tarrant of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire fame when he was the host of the show uh, before Jeremy Clarkson um, took over from it. Um, But my ex was uh, very high up as an ethical hacker and did a lot of work, uh, high profile government work, in in fact, with the MOD, um, with Kinetic and various other organisations. So I had that exposure, if you like, to the world of um, ethical hacking Mm. um, and cybersecurity um, from the years that that we were together. And I was always really fascinated with the um, psychology of, of hacking and social engineering and um, why people unfortunately get called uh, caught out with um, you know, phishing emails and and, and and online scams and things like like that. Um, and then I actually joined Titania Limited, which was my ex's um, cyber software development um, company. And uh, I worked uh, on that for a number of years. And then uh, when we separated and subsequently divorced, I knew that I really wanted to stay within cybersecurity and I did exactly that. So I went on to work um, with BT and did some work on their Assure cyber product, which is very similar to um, the uh, software product that Titania had. And then I branched out into cybersecurity awareness training. Um, and I took that that love, if you if you like, around the whole cyber psychology piece and social engineering to provide um, training and um, scenarios and cyber escape rooms, phishing email simulations and mm. so on um, to companies to get them thinking about their cybersecurity posture um, a lot better. And I also founded the UK Cybersecurity Association a few years ago, which has now rebranded to be known as Cybersecurity Unity. Um, I go out and I do a lot of speaking engagements. Um, I write for a lot of different publications. And for me, it's key to raise awareness around the smaller businesses, the SMEs, the sole traders, because even today, Brian, many don't believe or think that they have to do anything about their cybersecurity or cyber posture. And it's because they believe that they're too small to be targeted by cyber criminals. Um, that's not the case. Any business, any size, sole traders, we're all susceptible. We're all generation cyber, as I see it, and we're all susceptible to cyber attacks. Um, mm. So that's where my, my my passion lies is 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 taking that awareness out to um to to those smaller businesses, those sole traders and, and SMEs um to 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 do that. So um and as you rightly said, I myself am neurodivergent. 
um, been on quite the journey um, in terms of diagnosis and it's still ongoing. So, uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Well, look, um, first of all, uh, thank you for giving me a title for the podcast. We are all generation cyber. That's really good. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> I like that little phrase. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to pick up on one thing from, from with my BCS sort of careers hat on, because obviously mm-hmm. we like to promote the, uh, uh, the richness and interest of careers in IT, and you've chosen a cybersecurity career over a career in entertainment. So uh, mm-hmm. you're a great walking advert for that. What? Why is that? What? What is it that dragged you from entertainment into cybersecurity? Um, well, I actually had felt that I'd got to a natural point with the work I was doing with Chris. I'd been working closely with him for a number of years, from about 1995 which was before um, he, he was the host of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Mm. Um, so it was really not. I mean, obviously, I was a huge fan of, of, of Chris because I'm a, I'm a Tiswas girl and you know, I was a <laughs> huge Tiswas fan and, and so on. And um, so getting to work with him was a, was a massive privilege uh, when I joined his, his management company. But I'd gone about as far as I, I think on that journey with, with Chris and I'd seen him just from he was doing his Capital Radio breakfast show at the time. He was doing Tarot on TV and a few other appearances. But Millionaire really catapulted him back up into the the, the spotlight uh, massively. And um, it was also beating EastEnders in the ratings and so on. It was a huge phenomenon mm. back in back in the day and before the advent of social media, of course, because this was towards the late um, 90s, early 2000s. Um, and then I'd got to around about to 2008, 2009. And I just thought, I think I've gone as as far on this journey with Chris and I'd like to have a change in my career because I'd started very young working with Chris. I was only about 21 at the start of my career. So I hadn't known anything else. Um, And I wasn't thinking of of cyber particularly, although I had a huge interest in it because of of my ex. But the opportunity to join um, the the, the company that um, founded because it was growing and um, she was sinking massively with um, the workload uh, that she had. And so I joined the company to um, help with that workload, to help to grow the business and enable her to um, sit and code. And um, just for context uh, with listeners, I am referring to my ex as she because she is um, transitioning at the moment and she has my full support on her journey through that that process. Um, so um, I just wanted to give that that bit of context of, um, you know, I'm, I'm referring as, as, as she yeah. for that reason. Uh, interesting. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, so uh, tell, tell me a bit more about um, how you then got into the, the mindset for cybersecurity. Mm. Then. You, did, did you have mentors? Yeah. Were you mentored by your ex or did you do yeah. exams? How did that work? Um, Very much from my ex, but also I was fortunate to meet very early on, as I'm sure you you, you know, um, of a Dr. Emma Philpott um, from Miasmi, who at the time was um, just in the process of founding the first cyber cluster in the UK, the Malvern Mm -hmm. Cybersecurity Cluster. So she was an immense inspiration and a great source of of information and so on for me as I went on, on on this journey. Um, and also um, Stephen Borwell Fox, uh, very um, close by in, in Malvern as well to me, who has um, Borwell Limited and who is now also part of the Midland Cyber, which is what the Malvern Cybersecurity Cluster kind of morphed into a, a few years later. So I, w- I was really lucky to have some really good support um, and um, I guess sort of informal mentors, if, if you like, to help me on that that journey as I got to grips with with the cyber world. 
Ah, very interesting. So now let's get round down to, uh, should we call it the meat of our conversation? I'm not too sure if you're vegetarian, that doesn't work. Let's get round to the good vegetables uh, in mm -hmm. our conversation here. Um, yeah. we, we first started talking because you recognised that you had neurodiverse conditions, but you sort of yeah. learnt some more about yourself during the, during the recent time. So can you tell us a little yeah. bit about that journey? Absolutely. So I was first diagnosed with autism back in 2018. And I will admit at that time, I wasn't actually seeking a diagnosis and being you know, completely transparent. The, the word you know, neurodiversity wasn't even really part of my vocabulary at that point. But mm. I'd gone to access the GP for something really minor. I'd got a bite on my arm that had got a bit horrible so I, I went and it was obviously before COVID so it was oh come on in and we'll have a look at it so I went in and um, on the way out from that consultation she said to me oh she said you're um you hit a criteria for taking part in a study that Worcestershire Healthy Minds is doing looking at undiagnosed autism in women between the ages of 40 and 45 would you mind filling out a, a questionnaire about it and I did in reception thought nothing of it handed it in got a phone call um, later that evening from the same GP and said you've scored really highly for the potential um, of being autistic and um, the organisers of, the, um, of, of the, the study and the survey would love to meet you so that was arranged for the following week. I wow. spent about four or five hours with um, lots more questionnaires, um, lots of activities, um, some, some puzzles etc for them to conclude at the end that there was absolutely no doubt that I was definitely autistic. From that point on, I learned so much about neurodiversity and really delved into it. And the more I did, the more I thought, I'm sure there's more to my neurodiversity than just being autistic. Mm. So I asked in 2021 if I could be referred for an assessment for ADHD because I recognised I had a lot of um, ADHD traits as well. Um, finally got that assessment last year in January via the NHS Right to Choose pathway. And again, they concluded without beyond a shell of a doubt that the original diagnosis was indeed correct. And I did indeed have ADHD on top of that as, as well. And I couldn't have any medication for my ADHD because I have eye drops, latanoprost, one drop a day in my eye for borderline eye pressure. And latanoprost interacts with so many other medications, I can't tell you. So it's a real minefield of, mm. oh, we can give you that. No, we can't because it interacts with latanoprost and I have that a lot all the, all the time. So I couldn't have any meds for um, ADHD. And then in um, last month, in fact, I, I embarked on a course for neurodiversity in the workplace to allow me to be a trainer and go into organisations to train them about the benefits of hiring neurodivergent people. And we were covering um, dyspraxia. And as we're covering it and we're going through some of the signs and symptoms, I'm thinking, I'm like that, I'm really clumsy. I struggled to learn to drive. I have awful coordination. I could never you know, ride a bike because I just couldn't stay stable when we're learning to, to, to do it. So mm. again, delving into that, I always put those things, that clumsiness about myself, if you like, as part and parcel of being autistic. But even I'm still on my um, journey to understanding my neurodivergence because I believe I do have a lot of um, dyspraxia traits. So I'm going mm. down the, the the route again with the GP of can I get assessed for um, for dyspraxia somehow? And if not via the NHS, then I'm happy to go private to do that. I mean, that is a fascinating, all as recent as 2018 onwards, 
Yeah. So without making tasteless remarks about age or anything, that, that that's a little bit later in life, isn't it? So did Absolutely. you find that a, a sort of a light coming on type moment? Absolutely, because as far back as I can remember, Brian, I felt different, that I didn't fit in, that I wasn't the same as everybody else, that I struggled um, socially, that I struggled with eye contact, um, struggled when I was in environments that have got a lot of pattern or colours or loud sounds and and so on. And I just I, I never really understood why I just put it down to part and parcel of being me and didn't really think to too much of it. But where it came into its own was the office environment, because I mean, I did it. It was how I was brought up. You you go out to work, you go to an office, you come home and, I, and that's the way you know things things are. And that's what you do. So. I used to get to a Friday night and I'd be just so exhausted. I'd spend the weekend recovering from that. And by which time it's Sunday night and I've got to do it all over again the next day. Mm. And finding out that there was a reason why I struggled with that sort of sensory overload so much was just life changing. And I put things in place, things like remote working, even just doing a, a day in an office. I have to really psych myself up for it and allow time before and after that day, because if I don't, it's just too overwhelming, especially the older that, that I've got. Um, so it's it's just learning all that about myself and putting those measures in place to really help me you know, be the best that I can be and be as productive as I, I can be in the best environment for me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, it, with that context, we very much appreciate you speaking to us today, uh, you know, on, on camera and so on. In fact, it must be quite tough for you to go out and do this, the training work that you're actually undertaking now. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's why I say I allow that downtime before and, and after. Um, but one thing I've also learned as well is I'm better. I can do this the way we're doing it now on camera, mm. talking to you. I can do that. No problem at all. It's when I have to go out face to face in the office. Of Conferences is another one. You, you know, yourself, the noise, the overload, the mm. people and, and so on. Um, I didn't allow any downtime. I went to InfoSec um, last June and it was just at, just after it had been announced that I'd been awarded an, an MBE. So and it was my first in-person event, believe it or not, before COVID because train strikes and one thing and another. Right. It, I just never um, got to anything. Got to InfoSec last year and I, every two minutes something it was it was lovely, but it was really overwhelming. You know, people were spotting me, coming up to say hello, say congratulations and, and so on. Yes. And I couldn't get past a few feet without, oh, there's somebody else saying hello and somebody else saying hello and, and so on. Um so I've really learned from then to factor that all important downtime before and after a, a key event like that. That's really interesting. <laughs> tell tell us a little bit about the MBE, Lisa, if you would. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, it was for services to cybersecurity and diversity and inclusion because I'm a born campaigner and awareness raiser. Um, so I do a lot on my um, social media channels. I do a lot of speaking events. I do a lot to really get that important message about cybersecurity out, as I mentioned earlier, particularly mm. to the to small businesses, sole traders and, um, and, and uh, SMEs. And um, I just I had no clue, Brian, absolutely none. And it was a it was a Monday in May last year and uh, just an ordinary day. I'd just come off a meeting and I'd had my CCTV on in my office. So I'd seen the post go past. So, oh, I think there's something um, gone in the box. I'll go and get it. And of course, this envelope I got out of the box said 
on his majesty's service what on earth is this <laughs> opened it read it my first thought this is no joke was this is definitely a scam of some kind. That was my first thought, that there's no way this is a this scam of some sort. That's your cybersecurity but, training kicking straight yeah, in. Straight away. But there's a phone number at the top. And I thought, shall I phone the number? And then I thought, if I phone the number, I'll do the 141 to hide my number from the other yes. end, just in case. So I phoned the number. And it was answered by a lady um, who was incredibly well spoken. And at that moment, uh, my heart just went because I, was like, oh, I actually think this might be real. And she <laughs> confirmed it. It was um, and said, you're not the only one to phone to check about it. So then waited a couple of hours for my husband to get home from work. And during this time, I'm literally just shaking. And um, I told him I told nobody else until it was actually announced yeah. a month later. So yeah. I told I showed my husband and once he got over all the congratulations stuff, he said to me, you should have known that that wasn't a scam. And I said, how do you mean? He said, just look at the quality of that paper that's been paid for by <laughs> taxpayers money. I, <laughs> I said, you they will go to any lengths you cannot be too careful <laughs> well i think i think we definitely applaud your 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 um your your caution there that very much plays into what we're trying to do doesn't it as as pcs and you know making it actually good for society so that's all great but on the other hand also it was good news wasn't it so <laughs> absolutely in this particular case yeah lovely now um let's talk a little bit about some some tips then at least as you know mm. we, we we did some research a lot of the research we did which is now out on the bcs website please uh, look it up uh, listeners when you get an opportunity um a lot of it is is, is um is qualitative rather than quantitative because mm. we we spoke to 50 or so people that suffer from or have different sorts of issues that they face rather i should say and uh, one of the interesting things that came out for me was that a lot of the tools that some people find very useful, other people find completely useless. And this seems like to be a bit of a strange minefield. Mm. Has your experience been of that yeah. assistive technology? Okay. I will start off by saying that there is no one size fits all approach mm. and everyone that is neurodivergent is different with different needs and different things that will help them. So we, I can talk a little bit from my own perspective but it doesn't mean that it's obviously going to help everybody no. that's neurodivergent across the board so um for my adhd in particular i find that task planners and reminders and so on have been absolutely invaluable and especially from a work um, perspective because i actually have time blindness with adhd so especially if i'm really immersed in a task or do something else I can just completely lose all track of time. And then the next thing I, I know, I'll have missed an important call or a meeting or, or, mm. or something like that. So having regular reminders um, throughout the day that beep at me, say, sort of 10 minutes, five minutes before um, something I'm, I'm due to start. So before we talk today, my alarm went off um, 10 minutes before to say, you know, call with Brian at two o'clock so yeah. um, things like that absolutely invaluable I use Asana so all my daily tasks and monthly goals and so on go into in, into yeah. that and that's what I work to I then have um, Google Keep which which I call my sort of brain dumping grounds if I come across a particular link or just something of, of interest or uh, want to just note something it just goes into there and then I'd sort it all out later and I'll go Right, actually don't need that. Yes, that needs to be kept and so on. 
Um, and then I've got um, OneNote set up with different tabs and sections so that everything can go into into there once I've taken it out the, the Google Keep brain dump area, as, as I call it. Mm. Um, <laughs> in terms of um, software as, as, as well, getting a transcript of meetings is really important to me or being able to get recordings and listen back to key things because I may have missed something you know, to start with or just need that clarification point. So. All of that side of things is really useful um, for me as, as well. Um, and just from a, a bit of a personal perspective, smart home technology, believe it or not, Brian, or as I prefer to call it and my husband prefers to call it marriage savers. Um, so <laughs> he set up um, a, a, a dashboard on an Amazon sort of um, what's it called Amazon Fire uh, product. So he's actually yep. coded that dashboard so I can turn on things like the dishwasher washing machine and so on and if I forget to turn it off which I often do he set a countdown for the amount of time it's on so that when it gets to the end they'll just automatically turn themselves um, off we've got lights as well so smart lights and so on that will come on and off so again I'm terrible about forgetting the lights and, and things like that so even that sort of smart home adaptive technology for me has, has, has been life-changing just to help me manage that day-to-day -day a bit more that's really interesting. Uh, thank you for that. And so let me ask you from your perspective as well, and this plays, I'm sure, into things you talk about. What are the sort of things that organisations can do? Because as you say, there's no one size fits yeah. all. So so what are the sensitivities required, I suppose? Yeah, I, th I think, for, I mean, again, I can sort of talk from my perspective, but I think for, for me is providing those quiet areas or that quiet time that um, people need just to decompress and you know take things in and just sort of percolate meetings and, and things that they might have been told be a bit mindful as well about the the decor in an office so mm. you know nothing too loud or or, or patterns and colors and, and and things like like that um and also to be mindful of of noise levels or perhaps um Get, get your staff to, to, to use noise cancelling headphones and things like like that when I was in an office environment um, noise cancelling headphones were, were brilliant for me that I could just put them on get on with my work um, but and, and not have all that sensory overload of general chit chat or phones ringing and things like that although I will say in 2015 I remember I was barked at from across the office I was working at at the time to take those earphones off because it doesn't show that I'm very much a team player with them on. Um, but that was a few years ago before. Okay. Not, I not think super it's sensitive. <laughs> yeah, I think it's moved on a bit since then in terms of being yeah. you know, a bit more mindful about um, people's neurodivergent um, needs. Um, and another idea I'm, I'm percolating with Brian is something like I don't know whether passport is the right word, but um, and this goes into I'd love for it to be a newer inclusive world for all. And I, I and I would love it that everybody could go armed with their needs passport, for want of a phrase. And I don't mm. mean just from a neurodivergent perspective, but, you know, wouldn't it be great if everybody could just go into a workplace and have it listed down of these are the things that help me as an individual work at my best and be as productive as I can and it will help me be better at my at my job and more productive and help the organization get the best value from all their employees that they're paying for so I would love to see something you know like like that across the across the board yeah. that's a really interesting idea one of one of the questions we asked in the uh 
research that we did was when do you tell prospective employers about the need some people have been in the job for months before they even approached you know broke the subject Exactly that. And it came upon that that exact subject came upon the course I was on you know, last month about the timing of you know, introducing something like that. Mm. And a, a few on the cohort on the course with me said they wouldn't feel comfortable sharing that in the early days of starting a new role, that it might be something they'd be a bit more comfortable once they've got to know um, people there and they've settled in a bit and, and, and just feel that little bit more sort of settled and comfortable sharing those those needs. Yeah, interesting. So if you are looking things up, if you're looking for good resources, uh, Lisa, where, where do you tend to go? Um, I, I have a number of um, places. So um, in terms of autism, I always go to the National Autistic Society and see what they're doing. Um, I, fo- I follow Holly Foxcroft a lot. She puts out some really great stuff on um, neurodiversity in the in the workplace. And where I did my course as well, um, Thrive Neurodiversity and Mental Health, um, the website is It's Time to Thrive. Right. And um, I did my mental health first aid training through them, as well as doing the neurodiversity in the workplace training course. And they're a wealth of information and knowledge um, about all things neurodiversity in the workplace. That's really, really interesting. Very helpful indeed. Thank you so much for speaking to us. I've, I'm going to ask you one uh, general mm-hmm. question now, which is, sure. is there anything you'd like to share with us that I haven't managed to frame a question for? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think I, I, I think just I think don't if you are neurodivergent, don't be afraid to share that with um, with where you work and, and and you know your needs are important and they're just as important as, as as everyone else's and it can only benefit you and your employer in the long term. Although I do appreciate that it's it, it's a little bit scary sharing that in the very first stages of a new role. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, Lisa, can I say thank you so much for joining us this afternoon? Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Brian. Thank you very much.